Hello and welcome to Auric Digital's How to Make a Video Game Podcast. Here, you'll be entertained, informed and enlightened by the many goings-on within the studio as we introduce you to our projects, our colleagues and give you a little insight into how we operate. Thanks for listening in. We hope you enjoy today's episode. How to Make a Video Game, the podcast, colon, the podcast. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm the audio designer for Auric Digital. Back in, uh, I would normally say back in the studio, but not at the minute, uh, back working and recording remotely with the wonderful Jess Rutland. How's it going, Jess? It's going well. It's going well, Matt. When I say the word ogre to you, what immediately comes into your head? Well, um, y- using the most obvious thing, I'm, I'm thinking of one very big Shrek, the yoga that is Shrek. Um, not in any way attached to what we have been talking about in this season, of course. Am I correct in, that, in saying that? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I don't think we've mentioned any grumpy swamp dwellers in our time over the duration of this podcast. No, I don't think so. If, if we did, that would have been the first uh, mention of a swamp dwe- a dweller in any of the seasons. Um, but there's first, first times for everything, of course. There's always that. Um, but yeah, we are talking Ogre again. Um, so depending on where you are listening or how you're listening to these episodes, um, we've got a, a, another kind of double bill almost of um, Ogre content for today. Uh, Thomas is taking it upon himself to interview uh, David, aka Granite Penguin, who, Jess, um, has become uh, a bit of a force in the community um, surrounding Ogre. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, David has been really just a force of nature for for Ogre. They've been part of Auric Digital's community for ages. They have now, we'll we'll talk a little bit more in the interview later, but they're now a line editor for Ogre. So they're now part of the Ogre team. They are there at the baseline shaping the game and its future and its lore, which I think is absolutely incredible. They've been so helpful in you know helping us identify any bugs or, or anything that we've wanted to do in terms of design elements for the PC adaptation of the game that we've created. So, I mean, huge, huge thank you to David for all the help and support that they've provided. So I'm, I'm really excited to have them here today and to talk to them more about their, their journey as going from, you know, someone who's passionate about a game or about a theme or a hobby that they love and to now be directly involved with it. I think that's quite a remarkable journey to be able to go on to. Yeah, it's going to be really cool to learn about that trajectory. As you say, if you are a player and you start off playing a thing, you're a fan of that thing, and then this snowball effect just occurs and and towards further down the line of that, a role comes out of it. I mean, it's 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 a fairy tale to many. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to hear about that. But just before we go to um, Thomas's interview with David, how important is that for a development team and a game or an IP to have one, maybe more people who kind of, they kind of almost transcend the community. They're, they're community players and everything. And that's fantastic. It really is. But they sort of mm. transcend that and they go further. They go deeper. They, they they almost kind of become part of the matrix in that respect where they are on the inside of that game. They know it almost better than the, the developers do because they'll know it like on a on a design mm. level. Uh, maybe they have experience in game development too. Um, but how important is that for a studio to have one or, or many people like that, that that take it upon themselves to to go further? 
I, I think it's really, really important and really valuable. We can see the results whenever we've done any surveys after alphas and betas that we've run. We've recently run an alpha for Brewmaster and the feedback that we got from our community over the duration of that uh, alpha was so incredibly insightful and in helping the development team make decisions, critical key decisions where they thought this is a future we'd maybe like to include, but we're not sure. It, it really helps gain insight over to things that fall into that category. You often in games development, you know, exactly some things exactly. Yes, I want to put these into the game. We're definitely going to do this. This is more than achievable. And then you've got your, no, definitely not. Cut it out. Not going to bother with it. But then you've always got these few ideas that kind of float around in the middle and you think, oh, maybe we can make it a stretch goal or oh, maybe we should think about it. But actually, is there really that appeal to to the to the gamers for this feature to be included in the game? And to have someone like David and David's position who can take that attitude and understands the player perspective completely first and foremost, and then has that liaison and that insight into the game development side of things to then say, actually, as a player, as a consumer, this is what we would like, and this is a direction we'd like to go in, but can also acknowledge the development side of it as well. And to say, this is why this might be difficult to do, or this is why this is unrealistic to include in the game. And then it makes them perfectly kitted out to find the compromises. I think they become the perfect compromise solver in these situations. Um, I think that was, by, by and large, the most perfect way to put it. That was one of the best like sub-introductions to Thomas's interview with David, which we'll go to in a second. Um, you're absolutely right. It's so valuable to have someone like that on the inside that, that does go deeper and gets to know the game on such a level that um, it, they're almost looking at it more than just a player. Of course, that's important. You know, We want people to, to play games and just enjoy what we, what we, what we make, what we develop. Um, but to have that bridge... That, that that vehicle between the two things, that tether, um, it just adds for a much stronger dialogue, I think, between what can work, what is working, and what currently could be improved upon or something. But anyway, we're waffling way too much. Um, over to you, Thomas. Uh, let's go to this amazing interview. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about Ogre, not the Beast of Legend, but the classic board game by Steve Jackson. Uh, which was released in 1977, and we did an adaptation of in 2017. Um, if you've not listened to the previous episode of the podcast, which is an interview with Steve Jackson himself, uh, it's a brilliant interview, and we thoroughly recommend grabbing that first before you listen to this one, which carries on the Ogre story, interviewing uh, another member of the Steve Jackson Games family, um, David Rock, who will uh, no doubt introduce himself shortly. But as I say, if you don't know what Ogre is and you're wondering about it, jump back an episode to that. If you have listened to that or you're well in, uh, you, you know what it is, then stick around for the next part. So I would, uh, ext- with our extreme pleasure, that we welcome to the Auroc Digital podcast, uh, David Rock, who is a longtime Ogre player and fan uh, and has lots of important connections to the game that we're here to chat about. But I think the best person to introduce that is yourself, David. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how was it you got into Ogre? No, I'd love to. Thanks. Um, you know, as you said, my name's David. Um, many people will probably better recognize me from various forums as Granite Penguin. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely been playing some form of Ogre for literally almost as long as I can remember. Uh, it's been so long. In fact, the exact year is a little fuzzy but it was around 1978, 1979 
when I first got uh, GEV, which is the standalone sequel to Ogre. Um, got that, I got that for Christmas from my uncle uh, when I was about eight years old. And that same Christmas, he also gave me the basic D&D set. Um, so I Blame. That was a good hole. Yeah. So I, so, I, so I so I blame him. I blame him for everything. Um, you know, but but to be fair, uh, he just opened the door. I'm the one that ran through it. Uh, it's, it's not a it's not a stretch at all to say that um, the ogre line in general has had a big hand in shaping how I play games. Um, I also come at it from a slightly different angle than most people do. Um, you know, most people talk about Ogre, but I actually started with GEV, which was the second game that came the year after Ogre did. Um, it's in, it's kind of interesting because it's a sequel, but it's also a standalone game, so you can play it completely by itself without knowing anything about Ogre, which is how I played it for almost 10 years. Um, you know, I didn't actually have rules for Ogres until the deluxe edition and the Apple II version uh, that I got in 1987. So, you know, right. you know, for me. So, so could you? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, could you tell us a little? So, in, in the introduction to it, that the, I talked a little bit about the differences between GEV and Ogre, because in the video game version, you know, we have you can play classic Ogre and you can play the GD, GEV rules. But you know, as somebody well enmeshed in that, what would you say that the the main differences for a player between like classic ogre, like you know the the original edition and GV or GV ogre. Yeah. So the the main difference is the original uh, original ogre focused on the asymmetric warfare of a bunch of traditional armor units and infantry defending against a single monolithic ogre. Where where GEV is more conventional warfare, so the scenarios that came with that and the units that came with it um, expanded the range of unit types a little bit, but it also introduced a lot of terrain. So you add water, forests, streams, uh, roads, so you get road bonuses, towns uh, that give defense bonuses, and um, you know can impact movement uh, so it was focused a, a lot more on a more traditional wargaming conventional forces versus conventional forces working on the armor units rather than the ogres so you could use those rules to expand ogre if you had it but you didn't need that to play it so that's a great that's, that's great thank you sorry you you were telling us just before i interrupt you that that you didn't actually get ogres in your gameplay until the um the app 2 version and the the edition that came out in what's it 82 you said uh 87 86 87, or 87 yeah. it's it the the deluxe edition of ogre was basically just ogre on a slightly larger map um and it had little cardboard standees for the units um, it's actually size wise, it's my favorite format because it's a little bit bigger. So using the original, um, half inch counters fit just a little bit better in the hexes. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a nice layout for it. Um, but that one, that one's kind of a, kind of a weird one off, but it was actually that 
and the rules from the Apple II version where I finally got to see what the actual rules for using an Ogre were. Um, GEV actually came with a Mark IV Ogre. It came with stats for it, but the little details like how attacking treads works and stuff like that, um, you know that those those are the pieces that you needed ogre to understand you know i was able to infer most of what the rules were because the majority of the units you know you're dealing with the components that have the same attack and defense and that kind of thing it was just the, the little details that i couldn't quite figure out um you know so because of that my my slant when i think about ogre I'm usually thinking about it GEV first because I like playing the conventional stuff um, a lot more than playing with ogres, to be perfectly honest about it. Um, you know, I've obviously had 30 years of playing with ogres as well. <laughs> it's just that, you know, the seeds were planted early on. Yeah. And then, so, you know, after that deluxe edition comes out and you're playing that and ogre, you know, your interest in it continued you know where, where did you go with with the game from there um well one of the things that was always nice about having the computer version is i could actually play by myself um but one of the shortcomings from the apple II stuff was it was only ogre and you could play only the conventional units defending against an ogre uh, being able to play as the ogre wasn't an option um, you know, so that was, that was actually one of the things that was really nice about, uh, your edition when it came out, because it gave you the more, you know, gave you more flexibility on what sides you could play as and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, that, that was one of the things I was really looking forward to when it came out, um, over the years, um, uh, they've had a couple, they've had a couple expansions that that came out throughout the eighties, uh, that I picked up along the way. Um, so I had, uh, GEV first, then I picked up shockwave. And again, it's interesting because I got shockwave before I got ogre. Um, so the geomorphing maps so that you could have larger playing fields, uh, the introduction of cruise missiles and lasers and some other units, um, would, which for me is interesting because I'm not actually a huge fan of lasers because they added more complications with line of sight. And one of the things that I really like about Ogre for the most part is that there is no line of sight issue. If you're in mm. range, if you're in range, you can hit. Yeah. yeah. It, it makes it simple. Yeah. You don't have to worry about anything, you know? So Throughout the years, yeah. you know, you got that, got more. Uh, when Battlefields came out, that gave you more options for more maps to recycle a lot of your older scenarios. Um, you know, so it was it was really kind of neat. Um, the you know the irony of it is when you think about what makes Ogre a fun game to play, and one of the reasons why it's lasted as long as it has is because in the seventies. Wargaming on hex map setups were things that could take hours or days to play. 
You know, it was a massive effort. Right. It was a massive, massive effort to set up. Took forever to play. It was usually something you did over a weekend, if not longer. You know, it's like so you'd play, set it up on a table, play, go to bed, get up, continue playing. Yeah. Goodness <laughs> me. Really messed yeah. up. <laughs> You know, og- ogre, ogre. By contrast, you can play in a half an hour over lunch. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it really, no. it really distilled it down to, you know, just the essence of what it was to play the game. So you got just enough to get your fix, but you didn't have to invest a weekend to enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, for me, that that was one of the things that I loved about you know when I so I got the little box set edition which i think is uh i want to say second edition maybe third edition but the you know it was the fact that you were in combat really quickly you know it, it was you know it wasn't it wasn't many turns before the fighting had started and you know that's what i wanted the kind of clash of units i mean what would you say your elevator pitch as to why somebody should play ogre you know you, you've obviously played it a lot and you, you're a big fan of it you know if, if somebody's saying, well, I've heard of this thing, but I'm not sure I should check it out, what what would you say to say, yes, check it out? Well, I mean, one of the things that I'd really look at is it's not a complex game, but it's not a simple game. You know, there's a lot of underlying things with it that make it more interesting than it looks like it might be on the surface. Um one of the big factors with it is it has huge replayability because not only do you have the handful of scenarios that come with it out of the box, but it's intentionally designed to allow you to make up your own scenarios. You know, if even with, even with just the original ogre set that's focused on an ogre versus a bunch of other things, even in the original version, you could still have smaller conventional versus conventional forces, or you could have smaller ogres versus larger ogres that are uh, helped by some other conventional forces. So you've got a really wide range of things you can play with. And for me, it's always been kind of interesting because it's a way it's a way to get a quick game in and and have fun doing it because one of the biggest problems with traditional war gaming has always been the setup it's like if it ta- if it takes if it takes me an hour just to set the board up that's you know that that's a barrier to entry if i you know if i can sit down and set up in literally 2 minutes and start playing you know that that's huge yeah um and you know just just digging into that a little bit you know i, I think that for me i would 100 percent agree that ogre is deceptively simple in the best way of that as in it's like you say it seems simple but it's actually really complicated and as you know one of the people working on the digital version of it you know i, I think we appreciated that in in the the harshest possible way in that loads of those kind of rules that create this emergent complexity it means there's lots of edge cases and things like that which are great when you're playing the game because they create interesting outcomes they're hard work to develop it because you have to encode for all of those different outcomes i mean 
you must have encountered that yourself in playing it, you know, all the, all the different ways things can pivot because of those combinations of, of systems coming together. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, subtle changes over the years where, you know, this rule was modified in whatever year that uh, water edges now behave like streams. The original version of GEV, they didn't. Uh, going going from the going from the river to the clear terrain, you just did it. Um, you know they they added later on that that water edge is a stream, so your GEVs have to stop before crossing, uh, like they do for regular streams. And little changes like that have a huge impact on how the scenario plays out, how it's balanced. And that's one of the things that's kind of interesting when you start trying to make your own scenarios is that you have to take all of those things into account and it's impossible to play test enough. You're always going to find some edge where things don't behave the way that you'd like or that it unbalances it. And then you've got to go back and try again. Yeah. Again, interesting that like one of the challenges on the digital version, if I can, you know, if you'll indulge me a moment on it, is, you know, when the the Nightfall scenario, which is the campaign in the original, you know, that, that with the first pass of that um, was, it was clearly done, you know, and we had great input from, you know, Steve Jackson Games on doing that. It was clearly done as a board game scenario. And so each level was balanced equally between the two players. But of course, in a digital thing, what you want is the first mission to be, relatively introductory easy to get you into it and the last mission to be really tough so that the difficulty curve rises to meet you but um, and so again you know we 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 worked with steve jackson games to do that to change that you know it's a slightly different framing from a board game where there's two human players to one where there's not and it's about the progression of the individual player um i mean you've been playing over a long time you know how how do you find your ability with ogre has changed over time um, I would say that what I've found is you learn more of the subtlety. You get more, you get more of a feel of what works, what doesn't. Uh, you learn more about how strategies and statistics matter. You know, so as I got older and I learned more about how probabilities work, uh, that lends itself very well to playing Ogre because it's all a math statistics thing and you're really trying to mitigate how the statistics are going to bite you so when you're trying to build strategies you know one of the things that i end up doing a lot is i go in having one-to-one attacks in my head you know which is you know the the basic structure of how it works is you have attack strength versus defense strength and you compare them as a ratio. So one, so a one-to-one attack is if I have an attack strength of two or a defensive two, but it's also if I have an attack strength of three and a defensive two. So there's overage there. So one of the things that I focus on is trying to get that one-to-one to be exactly one-to-one so that I'm not wasting attack strength. Because if I could take that three 
and use it against treads. I could potentially take out three treads, where if I'm using it against something that has a defensive two, I'm effectively wasting one of my attack strength. So those are the kinds of things that I've paid more attention to as I've gotten older is how the math works, as opposed to just having fun playing a game because you're playing against the dice as much as you're playing against the other player. Already, um, just by listening to you, I think my ability to play the game has gone up by about 5 or 6% just by listening to all of that. It's so, <laughs> so, so useful. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think by listening to you, like your, your depth of understanding of Ogre really knows no bounds, David. It's very, very impressive. I guess maybe part of that, that depth and that mastery of the game is that perhaps what what fed into your new position as a line editor for Ogre, which congratulations for, by the way, as well. It, 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 it certainly helped. Uh, it was a very, <laughs> a very long string of weird events that, that led to it. Um, where, where, that, where that really came from is I'd been playing for years, uh, decades at that point. Uh, it was when the Designer's Edition Kickstarter happened in 2012 when things really started to get interesting for me uh, because what ended up happening is as a result of that kickstarter i got involved in steve jackson games men in black program which is a volunteer arm of people that go out to conventions um, flgs's which is the friendly local game stores uh, to to demo games to people and you know show them different things that that they have. So you know a lot of it is about us getting out and being able to play, but it's also so that other people can experience things like ogre and munchkin and you know now car wars. It, you know the, their full line of what's available. So while I was doing that. I got involved, ended up talking a lot on the forums because at that time we were doing rewrites of the rules that were going to become the sixth edition rules. So I put in mountains of posts on the Steve Jackson forums about all of those things, uh, which got me noticed. So when I went to Gen Con in 2013, Right after the Kickstarter had finished, I talked to the original line editor and ended up doing some playtesting at Gen Con. Ended up with them flying me down to Austin to do playtesting for a few days on some of the new things they were looking at. Uh, you know, it's like, and I figured, well, you know, I'm I'm going to ride this as as far as I can because this is never going to oh, happen absolutely. again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and since then, I mean we're we're getting close to 10 years now since that stuff was going on and we've gone through a couple a couple people that have filled the line editor position and they've both done amazing jobs. So I've got some really big shoes to fill in doing the next phase of it because uh, up to this point most of the things that have been done have been revitalizing the existing content 
So it's been getting everything converted into the sixth edition format because the designer's edition didn't include everything. There were two maps that were left out from the original expansions and a bunch of rules. And that's what eventually became the battlefields expansion that came out last year. Uh, you know, but now we've more or less exhausted all of the existing content being recreated. Uh, so now we're into what's next. And that's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to be able to be in that position at this point in time to see what that means. Well, are you able to tell us a little bit about what that means next, or is it all still under wraps? Well, I mean, also being relatively new, um, I don't have all of the insider information about everything that's going on or what they're thinking about. Uh, but the two things that I am aware of um, that I know are things that they want to do are the Ogre Miniatures Set 4, um, which is uh, the Combine Units, uh, the the existing Ogre Miniatures stuff that has come out. Uh, originally, it was around the year 2000 when they went in earnest into a miniatures version putting out metal um there were a handful of metals that were put out earlier than that um but the real push uh for ogre miniatures as a full rule set and uh metal to buy was around 2000 uh, which is kind of interesting because that's one i completely missed um but that was early, you know, early internet. You don't really, you know, you're not aware of things as much. I mean, that was something that was kind of interesting with games in general. You know, for me growing up in the 80s, um, you only played what you were aware of. And, you know, there were a lot of things you, you just didn't know existed or couldn't get because they weren't at your local store. Um, you know, there or you did mail order and you know as a as a 13 year old trying to talk your parents into mail ordering something it's like well that's a whole different whole different experience than than being old enough to do it yourself or the self-addressed stamped envelope it's like that's you know gone the way of the dodo a bit (laughs) 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 things are things are much more immediate now uh you know but so so Ogre Miniatures, they, you know, started with a, with a couple of Kickstarters to really get that going again over the last couple of years. Uh, they're doing that in plastic now. Uh, you know, they've done the majority of the uh, European uh, units, which for me are still the only uh, the only design that really exists because th- those are the designs that come from. Uh, Winchell Chung's original drawings that are in the original rules. And, you know, a GEV is always going to look only like this to me, even though it has had a different design for the combine units for almost 20, you know, 20 plus years. So (laughs) it's just, you know, I mean, is it, yeah, just as a brief segue, I wonder if you could just explain, you know, the, the, the combine and the, you know, the, the, the factions that exist within the Ogre timeline for any listeners who are, aren't quite as okay for it. Yeah, so originally there weren't any. 
Uh, you know, those are things that have developed over time, but they basically represent the two primary forces in the ogreverse of what the last war is supposed to be. So you have uh, the North American Combine, which is, for all practical purposes, uh, all of North America and uh, uh, the UK. And then you have the uh, uh, Pan-European Alliance, which is the rest of Europe. So those are the two primary forces that are involved in the battles that you're that you're talking about with Ogre. There are a lot of other smaller groups that have developed up through some of the lore over the years, but those are the two primary ones that define what a battle in Ogre typically is. And it's also important that it's mostly the combine side where the ogres come from there are ogres on the pe side but those are things that were developed in response to things that were coming from the combine forces um, and the original the original concept was effectively a combine ogre attaching attacking a pe command post being defended by pe units so, you know, so the original artwork around that was centered on what do PE forces look like? What does an ogre look like? And in GEV, you still didn't have a real separation. Uh, I mean, for me, the only difference was whether the counters were white on blue or blue on white. It wasn't even <laughs> one, one force or the other at that point. Uh, you know, so visually, the only reference I had was this is what a heavy tank looks like. This is what a GEV looks like. And the uh, implication was that both sides look the same. You know, it wasn't until the miniatures when they made distinct designs for each side. So, you know, I was playing for 20 years with a single view of what things looked like and it wasn't until 30 years that i actually saw that there were different designs because i completely skipped the miniatures the first time around yeah um did the miniatures version actually you know the, there was a version of ogre wasn't there that was explicitly a miniatures game i actually got a copy of it yeah uh, I, I don't know if you played that and can talk to that version at all. Yeah, um, you know the roughly speaking, there's a pretty direct analog between the hex map board game version and the miniatures version. But you know, and and typically you can say, well, you know, a hex on the on the warm on the hex map is roughly two inches under ogre miniatures. And if you played it with just that, you'd be fine. But there are a lot of more classic miniatures wargaming aspects in ogre miniatures that exist only in ogre miniatures. Uh, so talking about a lot more 
line of sight issues and different types of damage and size restrictions on can I cross this bridge, um, which is interestingly enough a discussion that's come up recently in some of the forums about how does this work and you know is this bridge not big enough kind of things and it's like well the answer is both um or neither depending on which rules you're using <laughs> so you know there's there's definitely very strong camps of people that play the board game or people that play miniatures there are some people that do both um but for the most part they are very much two distinct living organisms and it's very possible it's very possible that a lot of people that bought the miniatures really they're just using them to play the board game with miniatures which is not the same thing as playing ogre miniatures because there are miniature specific quirks in the rules that you know make a, a very considerable difference on how you play it No, that's that's, uh, that's really really useful information. Uh, thank you. Um, and then, uh, as a final thing to ask you, uh, I wonder what's your favourite attack strategy in Ogre? What what hints and tips would you give people in playing the game, either if they're you know mounting conventional infantry or if they're the Ogre or some combination? You know, what's the stuff you use? Well, I mean, if we're if we're talking, you know, about just classic ogre um you know it, it d- depends on defending or attacking uh, but if i'm defending in a classic game um, i tend to go with the balance of my forces being heavy tanks and gvs um, i almost i almost never use howitzers um you know two two heavies give you more potential damage that's an attack combined attack strength of eight versus six um, they can move they have a D3, so they're harder to kill, um, and it never fails that the, di- that the dice hate me when I when I try to use a howitzer. It's like, here's this one giant shot I'm going to take, and hey, yeah, I missed, you know, because I because that's just oh. how it works for me. <laughs> that, that's so gutting as well when you've got a, you know you've got a couple of howitzers and you you've got that kind of run when the ogre's got to pass them. Or, or hit them, you know, and you do rubbish rolls. It's so gutting because you know that's it. You know, you spent points on that thing, and you know, yeah, you, you you've lost the the window of opportunity because it can't move. So frustrating. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so again, that goes that goes back a little bit to my you know, as I get older and I learn more about things like statistics, you find out things like multiple one-to-one attacks is better than a single two-to-one attack um you know and you've got two different chances at something because if you fire the first time and you hit now you've got a free shot with the second unit at something different so you could potentially do more damage than trying to load up on an individual attack you know now there are there are cases where you must destroy that thing now where combining a whole host of stuff to try to get a four to one to guarantee you're going to hit it kind of thing. Um, but even with that, a four to one is still on the chart. I'm going to roll a one and I'm going to miss. Yeah. So, you know, that's for me, that's always in the back of my head. Um, 
but as far as general tactics against an ogre, I'll try to line up as many things as I can just outside of secondary range because I need to rush as many units as I possibly can at once and take as many shots as I can at once. Uh, I'll typically target the main battery first to try to cut down on its effective uh, strike range. Um, I'll, I'll completely ignore missiles um, because there's only a handful that you have to worry about. And those will typically get used up uh, with your units getting destroyed anyway. So, you know, that's just as good as taking a shot at it and destroying it. And the secondaries I will just ignore because in Ogre, you have to realize that the game is about stopping it. The treads are everything in the game. If you don't stop, if you don't stop it and it has no weapons, it will still run over your command post and you will lose. You must stop it. So that is the only thing on the ogre that is a mandatory thing to destroy. So if you can get, and especially with GEVs, uh, if you can get it down to where it has only secondary batteries, which have a range of two hexes, and you can re reduce its movement to two hexes per turn because it goes in steps. You know, so for a Mark V, it's every 20 units, it'll drop by one hex. So it starts at three hexes per turn, lose 20, it goes to two hexes, lose 20, it goes to one. Um, and the Mark III, it's in steps of 15. Um, if you can get it to where it can only move two hexes per turn and it has no main batteries, the GEVs are essentially invincible because they can move in, fire, and run away and get out of range and never be shot at. But you've got to get to that point, and movement is everything. Plus, at, M at movement two, that's the speed of the infantry. As long as the infantry can keep up, they can keep attacking. If the ogre just runs by them, they're just going to get left behind and be useless. So it's balancing, you know, how many things you want to die by versus how quickly do you want to destroy the treads is, is what the game really boils down to. Um, when you start talking about the ogre side, it's all of those things in reverse. Don't let 10 units come at you at once. Try to peel them off one at a time. Try to isolate one off in a corner. Go sideways. Don't go straight ahead. Um, you know, make them come to you instead of you going to them. You've got all the time in the world as the ogre. You know, your your yeah. your job is to get to the command post, but you're a computer. You don't care how long it takes. And yeah. you know, your your opponents will get frustrated and then attack you. You know, with the two units that they have, you crush them and move on. Um, the, the thing that I would really like to use as the ogre is ramming. Yeah, it, it, that's a great strategy. It does. It does a little bit of damage to your treads by doing it, but trading one tread or two, if it's a heavy tank that you're running into, it's an extra attack that you get to do during your movement phase. So it's an, an out of phase attack 
to disable or destroy one more thing that you can then go back and clean up later if you want to. So, yeah. you know, it's... No, that's a great strategy. Um, well, that, that, the lots of great stuff in there and would heartily recommend people go to either Steve Jackson Games on the website. You can, you can actually download the rules and everything from there. There's a free PDF of all the rules. Uh, you can buy a, a copy of Ogre off them, and it's a fantastic game, and you should have it in your collection if you don't. Um, uh, and also, you could pop over to the Ogre game page on our website and then pick up the digital version and yeah. uh, you know, try out. Yes, try out some of the strategies that David's been talking about because they're all brilliant stuff. Um, so I want to say a huge thank you for your time today, David. I know you're a, you're a, you're a very busy you're a very busy guy, and so I really appreciate you taking some time out to come and share your your history and insights into ogre so thank you for that no look yeah thank you so much yeah thank you know love being on um the the one other nugget about stuff that's upcoming i wanted to make sure that uh ogre zine 3 is something that we're trying is something we're trying to do um but one of the things that we need is content so um the first yeah, the the first the first two ogre zines, they're basically fanzines that that were produced by Steve Jackson Games, but a lot of that content came from outside Steve Jackson Games. It's you know, articles and things that fans wrote and submitted, and that's what we're really looking at for uh, this third edition of it coming out too. It's like I've got some things that are that are bubbling internally for for the for the magazine but uh it's like it's like the ogre book that was put together um a couple of times there have been a couple editions a lot of those are articles that were written in space gamer magazine or things that were submitted and you know it's it's more it's a collection of fan material that really helps put all of that together you know so I wanted to make sure that that we that we make you know that everyone knows we're looking for stuff um, you know for sub, for yeah. submissions for it because the more that we have the more we have to work with to put something together that's going to be great. And and how can people get uh, ideas for submissions to you or submissions themselves? Um, that is basically sending to ogre at sggames.com, uh, but there's also um, a link about writing guidelines uh, that uh, we can probably post someplace we'll, to go with that. We'll post it in the show notes here. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes so people check out the show notes. There will be the email address uh, that was just mentioned, and also a link to the writing guidelines to check out if you fancy. Uh, yeah, chucking in something into the next magazine. Well. Thank you again, David. Really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, we, we, we look forward to seeing um, what your reign as a overlord of line editor for Ogre will produce. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see to see what happens next. Really, really insightful. Um, it's so, so good to have that perspective from somebody who, first and foremost, knows the game far better than I ever could, I think. Mm. Um, and they add so much value to the experience that is Ogre, having played it a bit more since um, first working on it in 2017. It's a really enjoyable game. And the reason for that is down to individuals like David. Um, so thank you, David, for, for your time on that interview. It was really great. 
Jess, it was amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, I'm also enamored, really. I think actual mechanics of the of the gameplay as well. That's been really lovely to hear, to hear that more personalized aspect of the game and how someone felt about that. It's also been great to hear about where Ogre is going next as well. That's been really cool. I'm excited to to see Ogre continue to grow and go strength from strength to strength. And I think the future for Ogre here at Auric Digital is going to be one to watch. Mm. I think anything that has been around for some 30, 40 years already, clearly clearly there's value in that in that ip and there's there's a fan base there that worship um mm. the ground in which it is placed and so you're absolutely right it's, it's going to be really exciting to see where ogre goes next really exciting um it's it's always struck me as a bit of a game that it feels quite open there's there's a lot that can be added to it um I, i'm not a designer myself so please don't ask me for the specifics of what that might be but it's it strikes me as that. It's going to be so, so thrilling to see where it is in five, ten years from now um, mm. and the legacy that that it's going to, that it's going to build, you know? It, I mean, it already has such a legacy, such a lore behind it. Um, who knows where that's going to lead? Fantastic stuff. I can't, can't quite mm. believe the the level, Jess, that we're hitting on this season of the, the people involved. This is so, so good to have more... More color added to uh, to each and every episode. So good. Yes, so good. we've had a real collection of characters and experiences. It's been really amazing, and I love how I would say if I could give a word to this season, I would call it symbiotic, and I would say why. That's because <laughs> we just seem to have so many people we've been working with so closely and so collaboratively with. Uh, you know, with Ogre, we've made a digital version of an IP of a game that's been so very, very loved to so many over the last 40 years. And I think that's a mm. really good encapsulation for why I would call this season's word to be symbiotic. Perhaps that's the uh, that's the subtitle to the season then. Perhaps that's something we should do moving forward. It should be how to make a video game by Auric Digital, colon, the podcast, colon, whatever the subtitle is. I mean, that's the longest title ever. But, you know, it's 2021. We can do what we like. Exactly. If it works, we keep it. Who knows? 100%. <laughs> anyway, Jess, thank you so much again for your time today. Uh, it's always fantastic talking to you. Um, and again, that insight that you bring from the biz dev side of things, um, it's really, really crucial to, to have that that insight on on the other side of the mirror. So thanks so much. And I will see you in the next one. Thank you, Matt. In the fast-paced realm of the games industry, the best way to keep up to date with everything happening at Oroch Digital is to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, using the handle at Oroch Digital. And we're on LinkedIn too, as Oroch-Digital-Limited. We also encourage you to sign up to our mailing list to receive regular newsletters that go into more detail about our projects and to join our community Discord, who are the first to hear our updates. You can subscribe to the mailing list and join the Discord on our website, orocdigital.com. And whilst you're on the website, be sure to check out our recruitment page under orocdigital.com forward slash jobs, where we post all employment opportunities. Links to all these socials and more are in the episode description. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in the next one.